0: Thanks for waking up with WKOK Sunrise on News Radio 1070, WKOK and WKOK.com. And in place to be a fabulous producer once again this week, we have Mr. Rob Setter on the other side of the glass. Very much appreciated all his help and hard work. He'll be with us all week. So, yeah, please <laughs> tip our producer if he had some way to do so. We'd uh, very much appreciate that. On the news line with us now, we have a professor from Bucknell University, Dr. Marie Pizzornos on the line. Good morning, Marie. Thank you for calling in today.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: I do appreciate that. Uh, You are an Associate Professor of Biology and the Program Director in the Cellular Biology and Biochemistry Department at Bucknell University. And, I guess perhaps folks are going to understand the why in a moment, an experienced virologist. Explain what a virologist or virologist is in our world these days.
1: Well, this is somebody who's just interested in viruses and how they work, what their structures are, how they get into organisms, how they cause disease. There's lots of different kinds of scientists that study viruses. We're all interested in different aspects. But, yeah, it's just somebody who's interested in viruses. And I think, you know, we all realize that's kind of an important area of biology right now.
0: Well, we're in a tough time, but in any way, is this an exciting time? Did 2020 go super fast for you because of all the things going on?
1: So I sort of feel like my second job has been to learn as much about COVID and to keep up with all of the current reports. And, yeah, I have to admit, as as a scientist and a virologist, this year has been both, you know, obviously horrifying and upsetting to see so many people uh, get sick and die and to have to deal with all this disease. But, yeah, as a scientist, I'm sort of, you know, fascinated with what this virus is all about, what it's doing, how it's moving through populations. And um, so, yeah, it's sort of a double-edged sword
0: Now you, we we spoke about this a little bit already, so I kind of know the answer to this question a little bit. This was foreseen. You and your fellow scientists talked about this kind of thing happening at some point.
1: Right, so there are groups of public health officials and scientists around the world whose job it is to monitor new viruses, to monitor when new diseases seem to be cropping up and to pay attention to that. Um, And this is actually the third time in not-that-distant history that a coronavirus has spilled over from an animal into a human population. Um, Most people are vaguely aware of the original SARS virus back in 2002, which uh, infected about 2,000 people and killed 10% of them, so it was actually deadlier than the current SARS. Um, And then one that most people may not know about is the MERS virus. This is the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus, and that emerged in about 2012, and thankfully, um, you know, it's more deadly, but it hasn't killed very, it hasn't infected very many people, and it's been slowly sort of uh, moving to a population in the Middle East, but they seem to have a handle on it now. Well, so we, this is the third time, so we saw this coming.
0: Well, we know all about this virus. What makes the coronavirus so special this time?
1: So I think what makes it different than the original SARS virus is that it's more infectious, And thankfully that also makes it less deadly. So those two things do tend to to sort of um, correlate with each other. A virus that's more infectious does tend to be a little bit less deadly than some of its less infectious counterparts. The other big problem I think, and this is something we've all been worried about is that people can be infected and not know it at all, never become symptomatic, or can be infectious before they have symptoms. So, you know, most of us know not to go to work and go to school and go out in public when we're not feeling well. But if you don't know you're sick, you don't know to not go out and spread the virus. So I think that's been one of the major differences between this virus and um, the other coronaviruses that we deal with. Um, Yeah. And so I think that's one of the most important things. And so yeah, it's less deadly and that's that's a good thing, but it's still been bad. It's still been really really bad.
0: Well, and tell me about these variants. Uh, um, I have been learning to say thanks thanks to, you know, good reporters telling us to say this that uh, we're in a race against the variants so that our vaccines uh, stay effective. What's happening from your perspective when we talk about these variants and this uh, speed we have to uh, try to get ahead of it?
1: Right. So I mean, we're really seeing evolution in real time. Um, viruses, because they, in, they replicate so rapidly and they um, can produce so many different new copies of themselves so quickly. I mean, you have, may have a billion new virus particles in a single person every day that they're infected. So that level of replication <clears throat> is allowing evolution to take place in real time. And these are RNA viruses. So unlike our genome, which is DNA, RNA, when it gets copied, um, tends to have more mistakes in it. And thankfully, coronaviruses don't make as many mistakes as other RNA viruses, like influenza, but they still make mistakes. And every time they make a mistake, that changes the protein on the outside of the virus just a little bit. And that change can then allow a virus to be more infectious. And what that means, we've all talked and heard about the spike protein, right? And the spike protein is on the outside of the virus. It's like a key that sits in a lock on our cells and allows the virus to sort of unlock our cell and get in and allows that virus to get in and replicate. And so these new spike proteins are just slightly different and they bind to that lock on our cells a little bit more tightly. And what that means is that if you come in contact with a low level of virus, if the virus can't bind to your cells very well, it might not actually get a chance to infect you. But with these variants, they can bind more tightly. So even a small amount of virus is actually going to have a better chance of getting into your cell. And that's probably what we're seeing, is that just that interaction between the spike protein and the receptor on our cell makes it ever so slightly better at getting into our cells and causing an infection. And, right, we're worried about those taking over, and we know that some of these variants are starting to rise rapidly in the United States. And we are. We're in an arms race. We always are in an, in an arms race with viruses, but we're particularly in an arms race right now, because we're trying to get the vaccine out to as many people as possible and to give them immunity so that they can't be infected. And the fewer people who become infected, the fewer chances the virus has of replicating, the fewer variants we're going to get. And that's why wearing our masks and staying distant and doing all of the things we've been doing for the last year, as painful as it is and as tired as people are of doing it, we have to keep doing it because the fewer opportunities we give this virus to replicate, the fewer chances we get for more variants and that arms race to go in the favor of the virus rather than in the favor of us.
0: So the potentiality exists that one of these variants may not be uh, impacted by the vaccines?
1: Yeah, so when your immune system makes antibodies and cells to fight off a virus, it's very specific. Um, And so if if the variant is different enough, the antibodies may not bind as tightly. The ones that were made for the original virus may not bind the variant as well. And so that means your immune system just isn't going to have as much protection. Um, And so, yeah, we want to try to avoid that. Now, the good thing with these RNA vaccines is it's a relatively simple process to to change them. So if we know the sequence of the variants, which we do, we can then go in and and change those RNA vaccines to match the new variants. But, you know, people who've already been vaccinated, you know, it's been hard enough to get the vaccine once. You know, are people going to have to get a booster shot in a year for these variants? Are we going to have to get booster shots every year? I think those are the questions we're still trying to figure out.
0: Public health officials. Well, I, I always wonder if uh, individuals who enjoy herd or check that, who enjoy uh, vaccine hesitancy, I don't. I, I may personally think that's not ideal, but individuals who don't get it, as long as it's a small portion of the population, doesn't seem to bother the scientific community. So tell me about that
1: right so if you have a large enough popul- uh, percentage of the population that has immunity and that immunity could have come about by a natural infection or what's safer to get it from the vaccine then the virus has fewer places to hop to so if you're an infected person and everybody around you has immunity even if though you didn't get vaccinated the people around you are going to protect you from that virus right so there's fewer opportunities for that virus to jump from an infected person to an uh, uninfected person who doesn't have immunity. So that's what we call herd immunity. It's that protection we have from most of the population being vaccinated. Um, and for some viruses, that herd immunity has to be obscenely high, like for measles, which is very infectious. You need like 95 plus percentage of the population, which is why when we lose that vaccination rate to measles, we start to see these outbreaks of measles. Um, and we do that to protect also vulnerable people in our population, um, infants who can't necessarily be vaccinated right away and other individuals who can't get a vaccine. So, you know, we get vaccinated to protect others in our community to try and build up that herd immunity and give the virus fewer places to jump to that where it can infect and then um, spread to other people.
0: Well then, like the measles, we still have that with us in general, you know, certainly not prevalent, but uh, as you mentioned, not uh, not bizarrely uncommon. So will we always have this new virus with us now? Is this a a new disease for us to fight?
1: Yes. Sadly, it probably is going to be what we call endemic, which just means it's going to be one of those viruses that just goes through the population. Um I personally predict that it's probably a virus that children will get. It will eventually, maybe in ten or twenty years, sort of evolve into a childhood cold. Um, and that's the best hope. You know, it might not go that way, but that's I think what we're all hoping for, and that children will just get it. They'll build up that immunity earlier. We know right now that most children seem to be to handle this virus fairly well. And so over time, that virus may um, again, change, evolve, mutate, to become less deadly. Children will get it and uh, they'll just have that immunity for the rest of their lives We already deal with coronaviruses most you know a lot of colds that we get um, are caused by coronaviruses so that this may just become another one of those cold coronaviruses at some point Um
0: Yeah, there was something else I was going to say, but that that happens. We're we're, we're doing a half hour interview during this 10 minute segment, so that is perfectly understandable. My brain is cycling through questions as as we go through this. As you have observed, government and public health officials work together on this. Uh, Give us your observations. How have they done so far? Have they made some real home runs? Have they done some things you might have done differently? Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's always easy to be, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it, after a post-time quarterback and say, oh, they should have done this. Um, You know, yeah, the government response, both at some state and and, uh, the federal level, wasn't always perfect, and it could have been better. I think part of this is that even though we've been saying this might happen, Until you actually have it happen, I don't know that all the federal agencies were quite as well prepared. Um, And this is another reminder to the public. This is why we put money into public health agencies. They have to constantly be on guard. They have to constantly be be, um, watching and waiting for these kinds of events. So maintaining a good public health infrastructure is just so important for our health as a nation. And it's the kind of thing you don't pay attention to until you need it but people complain about you know too many taxes and everything but yeah some of that money is going to the cdc and going to state uh, public health agencies that are constantly keeping track of these things um yeah i mean it was unfortunate i think one of the early mistakes is the um and i have friends who work at the cdc and it's a great agency but uh and i don't know that they had got the funding they needed in the last several years but their test wasn't being widely used, and it wasn't. It, they had some bumps in getting their coronavirus test out the door. And I think that led to some of those early um, inf- infections being missed. And we weren't paying attention to some of those early infections. And we had some assumptions about how this virus was going to transmit, that it, people would only transmit if they were sick. And you know what they say about making assumptions. That's never a good idea. So, yeah, there were some stumbles at the beginning. And and I think, you know, if there's going to be a silver lining to any of this, we've learned some lessons that hopefully public health agencies can put into practice to keep watch for future events like this. And I hope this doesn't happen again anytime soon. But, uh, again, epidemiologists think that this isn't the last time.
0: I always think it is such a miracle that we even know how to do vaccines. I don't know how we got started doing vaccines, but some smart person figured out that somebody had an immunity and somebody didn't. Uh, tell us, we only have a couple moments left, but this idea of how vaccines came about at all, and if we can cram into it, uh, just some observ- observations about these current vaccines.
1: Right, so you actually reminded me of what else I wanted to talk about. So uh, Edward Jenner in the um, God uh, probably seventeen eighteen hundreds, was the first person to vaccinate someone. And he actually vaccinated for this horrible disease called smallpox. And the reason that we don't have to worry about smallpox anymore is it's the only human viral disease that's been eradicated. And it was eradicated through the use of the vaccine that wasn't really all that different than the one that Jenner developed. And so, yeah, he figured out that people who got a milder version of the virus couldn't get the actual more pathogenic version. And so he, you know, gave a little boy uh, cowpox, and then he challenged him with um, the actual uh, smallpox, which, of course, would be unethical to do today. And the boy survived. And so he was the first person to figure that out. And again, through an amazing campaign by the World Health Organization and help from the CDC in the 70s, we eradicated smallpox. We don't worry about smallpox. Nobody has to be vaccinated because it was literally eliminated. And we're really close to eliminating polio, which is the next virus that's been. So we all need to say thank you to public health and vaccines and remind ourselves that we don't get sick so often because these uh, wonders of science. Um, So asking how they work. They basically prime your immune system to recognize either a non-pathogenic, a non-dangerous version of the virus, so that when it sees the dangerous version, your immune system just gets rid of it, clamps down on it, and gets it out of your body. Um, And in the case of the coronavirus vaccines, we're just giving a little piece of the virus, this spike protein, because that's what the immune system is going to recognize normally. So if you just have your body make the spike protein or you give the spike protein, your immune system says, oh, yeah, okay, I know what this looks like, and then we'll go after
0: it. Well, to be, to be continued, I just, uh, <laughs> as I mentioned, I was cycling through questions so I could distill them down. We'll have you back. We appreciate this. Uh, we recently saw you in the uh, uh-huh. a video presentation from Bucknell University in the pre-show panel discussion for uh, stories from the front line. So we appreciate your participation in that. Thanks for your answers, and we will surely uh, call again, Marie. Thank you.
1: I'd love to be on again. Thank you very much.
0: That is uh, Dr. Marie Pizzorno, a Ph.D. and Associate Professor of Biology and the Program Director in the Cellular Biology and Biochemistry Department at Bucknell University, uh, talking about the coronavirus and the uh, vaccines. So as uh, she mentioned, she wants to come back on, so we will have her uh, back on the radio again.